Amen. Well, after Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and now the New Year, we're back in the Gospel of Luke. It has been some time, over half a year, forgive me, but our plan is to carry it out and finish sometime soon after Easter. And having finished, it will take us some four years in total. Uh, That really is too long, so I'll do my best to chart a straighter course next time. Uh, That said, we're nearing the final act of the book. The second act of the Gospel of Luke begins with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. The Apostle Peter confesses Jesus' identity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus tells him to say nothing about it, informing his disciples for the first time that he will go to the cross. And that's what it means for him to be the Messiah. And then he says, you won't, some of you, at least, three of you, will not perish until you see the kingdom of God coming in glory. And then we have the transfiguration. And immediately after those two events, Jesus' suffering foretold, his glory revealed, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And that's in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And the third act begins when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And where we find ourselves today, Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem is close to its end. There's only a few more run-ins and a few more teachings, very important ones, and we'll be back in Jerusalem leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. And so our passage today chronicles one of Jesus' more famous run-ins, and that is the story of the ten lepers. It's unique to the Gospel of Luke. It's not found in Mark or Matthew or John. And though it's not a parable, it has the force of a parable. It teaches us many things about life in the church, uh, particularly about faith and gratitude and how they are inseparable from one another. So, the passage picks up with Jesus' ongoing journey, and it reads, Luke 17, verse 11, While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, some historical context is necessary here. As many of you know, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The groups were divided along severe religious and racial lines. The Samaritans were counted as half-breeds among the Jews, mestizos, neither in nor out, but some deeply compromised mixture. And moreover, probably more damning, the Samaritans believed that Yahweh ought to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim in their territory, rather than in Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. So needless to say, the hostilities between the two groups was palpable. Think Israel and Palestine today. And Jesus was passing between the borderlands of these two peoples, Samaria in the south and Galilee in the north. Now, 
That detail will prove more important later, but the narrative continues now in verses 12 and 13. It says, As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So the condition of these men, leprosy, remains unknown to us. Various scholars and scientists have tried to pin it down to a certain condition or a number of conditions without decisive conclusion. One thing they are certain on, however, is that biblical leprosy, what we encounter here and in many other passages, is not what we know as leprosy or Hansen's disease today. The Hebrew word serat, um, that's the Hebrew word, and it's only It only came to be associated with leprosy um, due to a mistranslation sometime in the 6th century. So regardless of the actual condition of leprosy, the point is that these men were outcasts, excluded from society because of their condition. Now, by legal command, lepers were considered unclean, ritually unclean. defiled, and therefore unable to dwell among their brethren, the rest of Israel. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46 read as follows. It says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So theirs, these lepers, was a lifetime quarantine. Or at least until they recovered, which seems not all that common. So typically... Excluded from common life, lepers formed colonies outside the cities and depended upon the goodwill of others for their survival, typically sitting outside the city's gates begging for alms, begging for money. So in that sense, it's not all that undifferent from modern leprosy, where similar colonies, lazarets, were established and to some extent, are still established to quarantine those with this condition. So it seems that these men we encounter are a part of such a colony or the beginning of one. And again, the point is their social status, shunned and ostracized from the community. Similar, maybe, to people today who, upon seeing our first reaction, is to look away and to pretend not to notice them. And whatever the condition, and usually there is a condition, some mental or personality disorder, the social aspect, the, inclu- uh, the exclusion side of things, is typically the most acute suffering. Just this week, a gentleman called the church after service looking for a Greyhound ticket to get back home. Louisiana, or rather Lake Charles, Louisiana. And I was sure he was lying. Uh, But he pleaded with me. And so I thought, well, I'm going to pick him up. Found him at the gas station. And I took him for a bite to eat. And I got to talking with him. 
asked him about his situation and his experience and how he got there. And over the course of talking to him, it was very easy to realize, and he later confessed it, that he had a mental disability. And he was taken by a woman here in Los Lunas online who promised to love him and to take him in. And so he sold everything, moved out here, um, and she turned on him, leaving him stranded. And we talked for some time, and he shared that because of his condition, he had an extreme social anxiety. Uh, and he, he's terrified of what people would think of him, and so he preferred to lurk on the edges of society than expose himself to ridicule. This man, my friend, was a kind of leper who has no home among normal society, but, but he does with Jesus. The ten, ma- the ten men, the passage says, upon seeing Jesus, came out to meet him. They heard that Jesus was their friend and that he chose their kind. Maybe, maybe they heard rumors of another encounter recorded in the Gospels. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. So it seems very likely that these lepers heard about Jesus' kindness, his power to cure and restore them. And it brought them to him, to meet him. And in that sense... These lepers are an example of faith, at least for now. Or it's probably better said that we see in these lepers the beginnings of faith. Particularly in that phrase, the ten leprous men stood at a distance uh, to meet him or met him. And so on this passage, specifically the lepers hearing this report about Jesus and then coming to meet him, Martin Luther remarks and says the following, Observe how they had a good opinion of and a comforting assurance in Christ, and firmly thought he would be gracious to them. This thought made them bold and anxious to bring their troubles to him and to cry for help with great earnestness and a loud voice. So the leper's good opinion and comforting assurance in Jesus is the first step to genuine faith. It is faith's nature to presume to trust in Jesus' kindness. And faith forms bright visions of refuge in him. Faith, the scripture says, is the assurance of things hoped for. Without any, such, without any such assurance that Jesus is disposed to hearing our prayers, that he is willing to answer our pleas, there is no faith, and thus there is no seeking after him. Take again the ten lepers, who without such assurance, small though it likely was, they would have undoubtedly remained back at camp. 
And they would not have come out to meet him, nor would they have cried to him with a loud voice. Rather, if they didn't have faith, if they didn't believe the report that was spoken of Jesus, their doubt would have counseled them. Rather than compelled by faith to go out and meet Jesus, they would have said to themselves, what shall we do? Who knows if he actually wants to hear us? Maybe he won't notice us. James chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Genuine faith does not doubt, or at least strives not to doubt. It wrestles against its doubt. And it believes that God is good and gracious. It trusts with the single mind that He is a gracious giver. And because faith trusts in Jesus' kindness and His power, it raises His voice, it raises its voice rather, and cries out, not so much in desperation, but in confidence that it will be heard. They raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Once again, we see demonstrated in the lepers that faith is the engine of prayer. It compels us, faith does, to raise our voices to heaven. It makes us vigorous and loud in our prayers. But doubt, powerless as it is, does not come out to meet Jesus nor does it call upon him. Instead, doubt mopes and slouches and hangs its head. It opens its mouth to pray and it stammers, who knows, what if, who can say, and other similar faint-hearted expressions. And so whatever the circumstance before us, let us imitate the leper's in their example. They came out to meet him and raised their voices. Now, if you've been kept back by doubt, silenced by it, remember the Lord's words. I am willing. Be cleansed. And ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Rehabilitate, strengthen, nourish your faith on those words And come forth to meet him like the lepers, lifting up your voice in prayer once more. And without faith, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, in accordance with their faith... Jesus sends them to the priests as if they had already been healed. Verse uh, 14. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, 
they were cleansed. Faith issues uh, in obedience to Jesus' command. Go, right? They're not healed yet. He says go, and as they were going, they were healed. So faith issues in obedience to Jesus' command, and thus is proved true, and thus receives that for which it asks. And here we peek ahead in the story a bit. All ten lepers are healed, but only one returns to give thanks. Now we'll come to the case of the lepers themselves in a moment, their incomplete faith. But first we want to consider Jesus our Lord. He is an unbegrudging giver. Surely he knew that the nine would go and never turn back to thank him. The scripture says in the Gospel of John chapter 2 that Jesus knows all men. He does not need anyone to testify concerning man. Yet, He still chose to deal kindly with them and to cleanse them of their leprosy. Consider his grace, undeserved and even exploited, yet still given. Such is our Lord. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. God is kind, not merely to those who reciprocate and turn back to thank him, but even to ungrateful men, those who receive gifts from his hands and then act as if it had came from them all along. It seems thankfulness, the minimum requirement, the the, the slightest thing that someone could return. It's not yet obedience, nor yet devotion, but just simple thanks. Yet, even when that minimal regard is lacking, God still showers good things upon the ungrateful. Martin Luther remarks, If Jesus would have made use of justice here instead of love, as men are accustomed to do and as nature teaches, he would have made them all lepers again. Right? And I'm sure we do the same. But Christ is humble. He deals with us, spiritual lepers, not according to an economy of merit and exchange, but free grace. That is, he does not operate on a tit-for-tat, like-for-like basis, distributing his kindness only to those who guarantee to return it. Rather, Romans chapter 11, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God is not trapped in our never-ending eye-for-an-eye, you-do-for-me, I-do-for-you economics of reciprocity. But He overwhelms that entire system in free grace. 
Our entire existence is received from His hand. Nothing is properly ours, but always already a gift. And despite our unthankfulness, and despite even sometimes our meanness to Him, His loving kindness fails us not. Now we'll return to the necessity of our thanks at the end of the sermon, but first we need to reckon with Jesus' example. Be merciful, he says, just as your Father is merciful. So the same standard that God has measured out to us, spiritual lepers in His Son, is the same standard that He calls us to deal out to others. To progress beyond the economy of merit to an economy of grace. And that means very concretely, and at times quite painfully, not keeping our kindness back only for those who reciprocate or express due gratitude, but instead extending it even to the ungrateful. We are called as disciples of Jesus Christ not to be over-calculating with our mercy, carefully investing it in places where we expect to see return, but rather like God, to scatter it abroad, who causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, to give our kindness to all regardless of where it lands and whoever gobbles it up. Now, I'm inclined by nature to deal with others on a strict basis of reciprocity and justice, edging sometimes toward the more unsympathetic side of things, until... I remember Jesus' words. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now I know I have done nothing but squander the grace given to me. And yet God gives it again and again. He gives a greater grace, the scripture says, James chapter 4. And I cannot accept one measure for myself and then deal out another to others. If I am to have grace, I must give grace. If I am to have mercy, I must show mercy. For I'm not the one leper who returned, but the leper who turned away and never came back. And of course, there is a danger here that such kindness will be abused. But it's an unavoidable danger. Indeed, it's anticipated. Land, Jesus says, expecting nothing in return. If we struggle to give proper thanks to God, should we expect others to render it back to us? Such exploitation and ill-treatment is a discipleship occupational hazard. It comes with the territory following as we are the crucified Messiah. If we were following another Messiah, we ought to expect different, but we're following the one who was crucified. Now surely that doesn't mean we should be fools, but we should not be wiser than Jesus. And besides, Everything that is not returned to us by man and our kindness to 
our fellow human beings, becomes God's responsibility. Again, Jesus says, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Surely, surely there are many spiritual lepers in need of our kindness and mercy. Many will be thankless, the nine will go their way, and only come back to have more. But in their midst is the one. And what the nine failed to return, God promises to make up for. Your reward will be great. And the one, the one who returns, well, that one receives the gift of eternal life. Jesus graciously heals all ten lepers, but the one returns to render thanks and praise. The passage reads uh, in verses 15 and 16. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Now there's much to say here. But probably, most obvious is the ingratitude of the other lepers. We held them up together with the one as models of faith, and rightly so. But clearly, something went wrong, and their faith was not carried to completion, for it did not issue in praise. Now, there's one way of explaining the passage that would say that the lepers had no faith to begin with. Right, that they had no root of faith in their hearts. But that seems wrong. Instead, I think it's better to say that they had a kind of faith. They had the beginnings of faith. They started well, demonstrating faith's working in their lives, but they did not finish well. And I'd like to propose that we find them spoken of in the parable of the sower. They are the shallow hearts about whom Jesus speaks. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in the time of temptation, fall away. The physician's diagnosis seems to fit the nine lepers exactly. Their faith was not disingenuous, but without depth. They heard the report of Christ, believed it, and received healing from His hands, but they had no lasting root. That is, faith did not uh, uh, penetrate, rather, to the proper depth in their hearts, and left as soon as it came. Or to put it another way, Faith stayed at a surface level, and that is the level of the sign. The nine lepers' faith stopped short, content to receive the healing miracle, but only that, and not the one and not the one behind the miracle. Now it seems mystifying that they could so tangibly receive cleansing from Christ and not return to thank Him, but these are, of course. Spiritual matters. As the prophet says in Hosea chapter 11, 
When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called me, the more they called them, rather, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the, the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. Listen, but they did not know that I healed them. So faith has to go higher and deeper, past the sign to the thing that the sign points to, Jesus Christ. In other words, faith's journey is not complete until, like the one leper, it turns back and glorifies God with a loud voice and falls at Jesus' feet. There is a deeper comprehension that the one leper had in his faith. Again, notice what the text says. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. This one leper, unlike the others, saw that he had been healed. Now it seems quite obvious that they all saw But evidently, not in the same manner that he did. He saw, not with his physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Now that's confirmed in Jesus' own words later. Your faith, he says, has made you well. And of course, faith is spiritual sight. He saw that he had been healed, and he understood what the others did not. Again, the wording is specific. All of them were cleansed by Jesus, but only one recognized that he had been healed. All were cleansed, but only one was healed. And all roads lead to this one conclusion. Genuine faith pushes beyond the healing to the healer. Genuine faith apprehends Jesus. Whatever good things come our way, Whatever answers are granted to our prayer, we must be careful to grasp their inner meaning by faith and not be callous and unfeeling like the nine lepers. It's not a general faith that we're called to have. You believe that God is one, James says, but even the demons believe and tremble. It's not a general faith, but a very specific one that always refers back to Jesus. That receiving Mercy and grace from him turns back and falls at his feet. And of course, that can seem esoteric and abstract, and to some extent it is. We're not dealing with observable things when we talk about faith, at least initially. The inner workings of the leper's hearts, of his, the one heart, remains mysterious, but it works itself out in concrete terms. He gives thanks. That's the difference. Therein lies faith's completion and crown. Faith begins in prayer, but it ends in praise. The nine lepers start out well in prayer, even receiving their answer, but they do not end well because they do not return to give praise. So thanksgiving is not just decoration. Thanksgiving is not just decoration. It is primary. 
It's the serious business of the Christian life. What do you have, asked the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that you did not receive? What do you have that is not first a gift? And the answer is nothing. Everything is gift. It's at the very bottom of our existence, in creation and in new creation. And if everything is gift... If all of it is received from the Father's hand, then everything is praise and thanksgiving. The leper saw that he had been healed and turned back. He did not receive the gift and keep on his way, like the others making a straight line somewhere else. But he turned back. He turned back. And therein lies the message to each one of us complete that wonderful circle of salvation. Romans 11, all things are from God, they're through God, and they're to God. Our creation and redemption are from the Father, and most certainly they are through the Son and the Spirit, and they are to the one God in our praise and glory. All things are from Him, through him, and to him. And so thanksgiving is the sign of convertedness. It's what separates the one from the nine. It's the mark of those who have been remade in Christ, transplanted from one way of living into another, a new way, delivered from the dark inward kingdom of ingratitude and transferred to the bright outward kingdom of thanksgiving. John Webster, in his sermon on thanksgiving, says thus, Christian life is new life because it transforms us out of our refusal to live thankfully to a life which acknowledges, celebrates, and lives from the grace of God. Part of what makes the church such a strange reality in the world is that it's a place where callousness And ingratitude are being set aside, and human beings are beginning to learn one of the fundamental things we must learn if we are to be healed. Namely, how to say those words which chase away an entire army of demons, we give thanks to God always. How many good things have we received from the Father's hand? Not least the Son and the Spirit. Let us not continue on the straight path away from him in ingratitude and callousness, but turn back like the one offering true thanksgiving and praise. And faith, remember, is the key. Faith is the key. Every good thing comes from above, but only faith can trace its path upward back to the Father. Without faith, all the good things go unnoticed or misused. But with faith, we can see that everything in our life is a gift from the Father. And with faith, we can render back true praise. All is gift, and therefore, all is praise. Now, as we, as we close and we draw down, my favorite name for communion is 
the Eucharist. Now, I don't use it much because it has a Catholic flavor that worries some, but I think it might change that. It comes from the Greek word Eucharisti, or Eucharista, which simply means thanksgiving. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And so our participation in the supper as we culminate our service is our thanksgiving. And now, what better way to end this sermon, not by talking about thanksgiving, but by giving it, turning back with the one leper. So as we prepare to receive the elements, as the music plays in the background, call to mind what the bread and the cup communicate, what they give us a share in, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our salvation the supreme gift that calls from us the utmost praise and thanksgiving. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, the Apostle Paul says. And so now, with the one leper, let's acknowledge all the good things that God has given us, namely, our salvation in his Son and Spirit. Let's see, recognize that we're healed and turn back And with a loud voice, fall at Jesus' feet, giving him glory. Thank him now, and I'll come to pray in a minute.